You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. My guest today is Melinda Krynan-Hill. She's been on the show a few times. Today, we're going to be talking all about concussion, the silent injury, and helpful support systems. The idea for this conversation came from a number of requests from various patients on our social media and different platforms that wanted something that they could share with you know parents, friends, family, uh, their support network because concussion is one of those things that um, you know these individuals have a hard time understanding and understanding what they're going through and how to be supportive. And so, you know, obviously bringing on Melinda, who is a registered psychotherapist and kind of deals in the chronic pain and concussion world, I think is, is a good person to have to deal with this topic. So I'll just do your bio, Melinda, and then, uh, and then, and then we can kind of take it from there. So Melinda Crinan Hill is a registered psychotherapist trained and trained mindfulness facilitator, founder of Still Space, which is a mindfulness consulting company that offers mindfulness and compassion-based initiatives to enhance wellness. She is trained in a range of mindfulness-based interventions, and her academic background includes a Master of Education in Counseling Psychology from the University of Toronto and a Master's in Public Health and Health Promotion from the University of Alberta. Melinda has a particular expertise working with chronic health concerns, including chronic pain, and I think we'll touch on that a little bit in this discussion as well, because concussion, chronic pain, there's a tremendous amount of overlap there, so I think that's important. Uh, Complex health conditions, rare diseases, autoimmune diseases, post-concussion syndrome and associated mental health concerns such as health anxiety depression and adjustment difficulties uh you might not be able to tell from the audio but i am uh feeling a little bit under the weather i'm a little bit congested so i am sucking on a halls right now so if i do end up in a coughing fit or uh sneezing or (laughs) um clanking a halls around my mouth that is why so i do apologize for that in advance so like i said Um, I want this episode to be just that I want this episode to be something that either, you know, a concussion patient, a PCS patient could send to a friend, family member, whatever that they want to either share or something that we can they can listen to and develop uh, or gain some insights or strategies for how they can, um, you know, address their kind of support network and and kind of get what they need, um, you know, from that. So um, I think that's a good place. um, to kind of kick it off. And so first off, just want to talk about, you know, concussion being this like silent injury and being an invisible thing, you know, you look fine, therefore you should be fine. You know, the, the example that's always used is you don't have a cast on your arm. And so, you know, nobody really knows that you're injured or hurt or having difficulties. Does this make things more challenging for people? just the fact that people can't see it? Like, is that, is that automatically just a more difficult thing to deal with? It seems like it would be. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, invisible illness, whether that is something like concussion or other types of invisible illness, like autoimmune conditions, for example, it creates a whole other layer of complexity. You know, when people can physically see that something's wrong, they tend to assume that persona of, oh, this person needs maybe some support. 
Um, certain ways in which that isn't helpful is if somebody is very capable but has a physical disability, people will still change their perception on how they approach them. Um, so that's kind of, you know, not anywhere we're going to go today, but just something that is around the way society responds, right? If we physically or we, you know, visually can see something is, is wrong, like Cam said, if there's a cast on your arm, then we're likely to focus on that support and ask about it. But if it's something like concussion is something like an autoimmune disease, for example, you can't see it. So people often won't say anything or they don't know unless the person with the injury has actually communicated what's going on. So it, it just creates this whole spiral of, um, um, you know, not knowing how from, from the support person's perspective, not knowing how to show up for the person or even not knowing what's going on. And then for the person with the injury or the concussion, sort of thinking, hey, why can't people see what's going on with me? Like, can't they see that I'm tired? Can't they see that my energy is low? Can't they see that, you know, I haven't been able to show up for things that I normally show up for? There's sort of this sense of the way our behaviors are adjusted should be enough of a message that our support systems would pick up on, but sometimes it's not. You, yeah. you mentioned something there about, um, you know, helping too much if somebody has a physical disability and like overcompensating and sometimes mm -hmm. the person, the person may not want that the person may want to, to do it on their own. And I feel that with, with um, concussion, and especially if somebody does know, and I, I want to talk a little bit about like self advocacy and how to, you know, kind of bring that up and how to kind of bring a support network on board with kind of what you're going for and how to be more supportive. I would imagine that it's different for everybody though, right? Like each individual injured person is going to have a different level of support. So just because you had one friend with a concussion doesn't mean your next friend with a concussion is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. So how does the concussed patient then self-advocate for themselves for their unique condition and circumstances? Like, I feel like that's, that's a, that's a, a, question. a, that's a, that's a roadblock for people. No. I mean, I think that's, that is the roadblock. I don't think it's an impossible roadblock, right? I think that maybe it's actually a bump in the road, but it's difficult when you're in it, when you're in the injury to kind of see, well, how do I get myself out of it? How do I self-advocate? Because when you're, um, you know, working through concussion, there's so much going on that it, it can be so difficult to see the way your needs have changed and what your needs maybe are. So, you know, one of the things I was kind of jotting down when I was thinking about this topic is, you know, how can I help myself if I'm the one that's injured? It's sort of starting to get to know what your needs are and recognizing that those have evolved and changed since before you were injured, since you were first injured, six months after you were injured, a year and so on. And that those needs are always going to be changing and evolving. And it's okay to sort of say, hey, maybe I don't need that emotional validation anymore. I don't need people to say, I'm so sorry this happened to you, but maybe you need somebody to help you with groceries and you want to go to the grocery store because you'd like to practice the, you know, getting your visual rehab up and you don't want to do online order or something. You'd like to physically go, but you need someone with you. So mm. advocating for your needs are going to be so different depending on where you are in that journey. And I think one of the main things I wrote down is how much those needs will change and evolve over time. And so it's sort of this, you know, in the work that I do, it, it, an invitation to the clients I see to say, hey, can you just take a look and reevaluate what your needs are? Because they're probably different than they were last week than they mm. were four months ago. 
Um, and it can take time to really figure out, you know, if I'm going to self-advocate, what is it that I'm asking for? Yeah. And I mean, I think with, with concussion, it is going to change. Like as you start getting better, as your symptoms change, you're going to need different things. You know, like you said, you're going to need, you know, maybe, you know, support validation up front, And then maybe beyond that, you're going to need maybe, you know, challenging and new experiences, but a friend to be there. Why is, why is self-advocacy in that so difficult? Cause it is, I can, I can, I'm just, you know, guessing that this is a difficult thing for most people. I think that most people don't necessarily want to be a burden on their friends and family. And so is that, is that the difficulty? Is that why people have such a challenge in doing this? And then, you know, just to build on that, what are some things they can do or how can they reframe maybe their thinking around it um, to, to have confidence or I don't know if confidence is the right word, but um, I know what you mean. Yeah. Be, be willing to, do it, be willing to advocate for themselves. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting that we're talking about this because there's, it's so subjective, you know, we could ask one question and go 10 different directions with it. So I think, you know, for the sake of, of this conversation is sort of, we can cover what we can, but I would imagine we're going to get lots of feedback and lots of questions. Well, did you think about this? And did you think about that? And I kind of welcome those questions because I'd love to know maybe where I haven't thought of to go with this, but there's so much that even comes up with you asking that. So it ties back into First of all, with this idea of having an invisible illness or a silent injury, because it's not explicitly stated, there's so much built up in the person who's injured that can range from shame, grief, um, uh, embarrassment, or on the other side, a little bit of helplessness. I don't know how to help myself. There could be even clinical things like depression and anxiety that develop that can prevent people from advocating in the ways that they, that would be helpful for them. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is who were you, your identity before your injury? And are you still trying to fill those shoes when you're injured? So for example, somebody who's used to being the nurturer, the caregiver for their family and friends, and they get injured, suddenly can't do that. They need to be the one that's the receiver of support and care and, and, and help, but that may be extremely uncomfortable, right? And that's where what you said um, about it feeling like a burden can come in. Mm. Yeah. And I could, you know, cite off 10 different examples of how that could play out in different realms. There's just so much subjectivity in terms of um, what could happen and, and how it is that people end up feeling like they don't know how to advocate. You know, the other aspect is sort of self-confidence when you take a hit, uh, you know, physically with concussion, if it was an injury that way, but a hit to your self-confidence, a hit to your identity, something that kind of brings you down. You don't feel up to communicating that all the time to others, or even having the energy to maybe try to figure out yourself at the beginning, well, what is it that I need? So those are the things where, you know, external supports can be really helpful, like talking to someone, helping to identify what the helpful things are, recognizing what your role is when you weren't injured, you know, I would say societal role, like, are you kind of, um, you know, used to being a leader and doing everything on your own, or perhaps, you know, type A personality doing everything with so much detail, but you may not have the energy for it. And like I said earlier, there's this sense of, you know, were you a nurturer? And now you need to be the one that's nurtured. All these things can really throw you following an injury and make it really confusing to figure out, well, how do I help myself mm -hmm. through this? 
I think that adds another layer just to the, to the injury itself too, because it makes it more challenging to recover. I know that there's in the concussion space, particularly around like chronic traumatic encephalopathy and the long-term neurodegenerative effects that are associated with concussion. And a lot of the symptoms of that are, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, mental health, anger, rage, you know, the list goes on cognitive difficulties, trouble thinking, trouble remembering things, all of these difficulties that some in the scientific world are attributing purely to, um, you know, concussion, brain trauma, all these other things, but there's kind of this, you know, this new facet that's saying, well, what else could be going on? Right. And one of the theories around why some of these athletes are going through this is actually just post-retirement stress because you do lose that identity, right? I'm an athlete, I'm a professional, this is what I do. And then all of a sudden you now retire, you're in your thirties and now what? And who am I? And it's like this, this crisis scenario. And so I think there's a lot, um, you know, there's just so many, it's so multifactorial. I think that it's, that it's hard to, uh, hard to pin it on. I think what's going to be interesting is that you're covering this topic tomorrow on the concussion fix in our group session. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to hear from a lot of patients within that, a lot of the members within our platform, you know, where their unique challenges are. And I think that's going to be an interesting uh, an, an, an interesting chat for sure. Yeah. You know, I like the example you use there about, you know, athletes when they retire and almost having this identity shift. I think that's actually sort of maybe, I don't know if the right word is mainstream, but it's sort of a common thing that we know is happening. Um, that is a great example because the exact same thing happens when you get injured, even if you don't end up retiring from sport, if you're an athlete, but when you're injured and it's something like PCS, meaning it's been going on for several months, if not longer, there is an identity shift. It doesn't mean you're not going to become the person you were before again, once you're well, but there is an identity shift because so much changes your needs, what you're capable of doing, who you want to surround yourself, how much energy you have. And so that is so important and similar to this mainstream example where, you know, athletes that retire sort of are suddenly like, oh my God, what do I do with my life? I've, you know, all I've known my whole life is to be an athlete and work hard for this one goal. And now the world is my oyster and I don't have a clue what to do with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that can be helpful. That example, that comparison. There's, it just kind of reminded me of something too, that there's this idea, it's kind of a little bit off topic, but somewhat on the same topic, but there's this idea within the concussion world that concussion itself can lead to, you know, depression, anxiety. And there is a lot of evidence that it can, particularly in like years afterwards, right? There's just, there's a couple of recent studies in adults and, and pediatrics and large scale studies that found that within three to five years after their injury, your chances of having a diagnosis of anxiety, depression uh, are much higher than any other type of injury. But when you look at specifically an athlete, an athletic population, if you look at NCAA athletes and you look at concussion versus those that have just torn their ACLs, those that have torn their ACLs actually have higher initial depression scores than those with concussion. And it's purely, I think, that identity crisis that that starts to emerge. So a little bit outside of the topic, but still, I think, somewhat relevant to what yeah, we were talking about. I mean, about. I think drawing comparisons to what happens a lot in other aspects is helpful. Again, when something's an invisible injury, silent injury, 
um, it can be so hard, even for the person who's injured, to put into words what's happening for them. So I think that these examples we're sharing are actually really helpful ways to connect the dots for people. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to share that might shift gears a bit, so feel free to go back to where we were if we're switching topics too quickly, but I was reading up on some of the research around this, and the two things I found that I already knew, but I didn't have the evidence behind it, were things um, around withdrawal being one of the most common um, responses to silent injury and being concussion in the research as far as what happens with social support. So we withdraw from our social connections, family, friends, loved ones, work colleagues, when we are injured and don't feel ourselves. The other thing that we have a tendency to do is use avoidance-based strategies instead of emotional coping to get through um, with our social support. So what's happening from the lens of our support people? Well, suddenly this person is absent. They're not really talking and reaching out to me. They aren't sharing with me what's going on because in their mind, they're sort of withdrawing and avoiding. And that's such a typical way to respond, particularly at the start of the injury that can sort of almost set the tone for this low social support in the future. Um, so that's something just to even think about, hey, if you're someone who's been injured, it's been a little while, can you think back to the beginning or even still now, are these two things relevant for you? Do you feel that withdrawal and avoidance are kind of the way that you've coped? Um, because that's a predictor for um, creating or maybe breaking down social support systems in the future. And so that's something to really kind of be keenly aware of so that you can work on it. That's that's super interesting because avoidance is like the cornerstone for PCS. Avoidance of cognitive activity increases your chances of having cognitive problems, right? We call mm-hmm. it we call it cognophobia. Those mm-hmm. that think that too much cognitive activity is going to set them back will generally avoid that and that avoidant behavior makes the cognitive problems worse. Physical activity, same thing, kinesiophobia, people being afraid of exercise or any type of exertion will actually avoid it in fear of making things worse and actually by avoiding it are making things worse, but Mm -hmm. they don't really know it. So it's interesting that in the same token, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, avoidance of, you know, social interactions obviously is going to reduce your social interaction. And then that can actually make that stuff worse as well. Um, there was a study that was done. It was, it was a few years ago. And I, I'm, I think it was in Japan or, or, or somewhere in Asia, um, but they were talking about just social support being, being a high predictor of concussion recovery and those that would have persistent symptoms and those that maintained some social support and had the strongest social support did better in terms of their recovery. So it's all these kind of counterintuitive things like, you know, exercise we used to think was bad, but actually exercise is good for concussion recovery, right? Socializing and hanging out with friends and having that support network and staying close, you know, we think might be detrimental to us, but it's actually beneficial to us. And so it's just kind of maybe reframing that thinking around things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to kind of jump ahead to in my kind of line of questioning now, but just talking about avoidance versus, um, you know, versus challenging. Um, and so I would think that, you know, a concussion patient who is kind of more avoidant might request certain things from their social network that 
perpetuates their avoidance, right? Like, you know, I want to hang out with you, but you have to have the lights dim, the TV off the, you know, like, so really, really, really changing, you know, that, that social dynamic, or I want to, I want to hang out with you, but I can't go into a public environment because there's too much noise and too much activity. Yeah. And so how (laughs) it's, it's a hard question because how do you balance that because you want to be a supporter, but you also don't want to necessarily be, and this is probably the wrong word too, but almost an enabler of avoidant activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think there's so many ways we could go with that, but I, you know, from the person who's injured or the, the um, person who's concussed from their perspective, being able to communicate those needs is actually so important. Um, I'll touch on that, whether it's enabler in a minute, but um, being able to figure out how to communicate to loved ones, friends, supports, um, what will make the environment comfortable for you to be able to show up, I think is the first step. Because if you're withdrawing and avoiding altogether and staying home and not talking to your supports, um, that's going to be worse than going into an environment where you've been able to set the stage. I think even just being able to frame and communicate explicitly to your supports is a huge task in itself because there's so much emotion behind it. Well, Mm. I don't want to have to ask for this. I'm going to be embarrassed. What if they make fun of me? What if I don't fit in anymore? What are they going to think of me? Do they still think I'm capable? Yeah, I could go on and on and on with all these, you know, cognitive thoughts that come up when we think about having to shift our identity or shift our needs when we're, we're being with some, um, you know, going to, to engage socially or show up for a work meeting, um, go to a family dinner, whatever it is. But I think the most important thing is um, being able to communicate explicitly and trying it out. I always say, try it out with safe people. You know, who's someone you trust that you have a really uncomplicated relationship with that you could say anything or at least almost anything and know that they're still going to love you for it. So try out some of these, you know, explicit communication strategies with those supports and then move on from there to sort of figure out, Hey, okay, that went well. Can I build some confidence to try that with the next person? Maybe a less close friend that maybe doesn't know me so well. And I'm a little bit nervous about judgment, but if I set out my needs more explicitly, maybe they'll just be like, oh, great. That's what I needed. So from that support person's perspective, and this is what I'm going to get into tomorrow from the support person's perspective, they actually need explicit communication. They need you to tell them what's going on in order to adapt to Um, what your needs are. They're not going to know, like we've said before, it's an invisible or silent injury. So your supports aren't going to know what it is specifically that you need. So I think think that's kind of the beginning down the road. It can become an enabling behavior. If you're always going to people who will show up the way you're, you're asking without challenging yourself at all, but I would imagine most people listening to this are probably somewhere in this sense of how do I build my supports and, mm. and how do I even just try to open those doors to new supports? And, and I think communication, explicit communication is really important in that. And do you find, and this is kind of going on the other spectrum of this, but um, I've had patients before who 
it's almost like it becomes too much to hang out with their friends because they're getting constant questions from their friends. Like, Hey, how are you feeling? And so every time they go up, it's almost like, or, or even going back to work, right. They don't want to go back to work because they don't want to deal with all of the, like, Oh my God, how are you? And how, Oh, how are you? You know, like, and they're just like, ah, oh, just, you know what I mean? Like one of those things and even hanging out mm-hmm. with friends or like going out to socialize, especially if you've been kind of withdrawn for a bit and now you're like, okay, I'm ready to do it. There's this barrier to, doing that because of all of the, you know, questions and almost like over support you might, Mm -hmm. you might get, I would assume it's a similar strategy. We're going to have that same, like, look, every time I see you, don't ask me about how I'm feeling. I just don't, I want to kind of put it behind me and you constantly asking me is making me just keep reliving this. And I'm trying to move forward and, Mm -hmm. you know, let's pretend this never happened. Or like, is that the way to approach it? someone that you're close with that you know won't take offense to you just being blunt with them saying hey I really don't want you to ask me that question you know when I talk to people who are trying to figure out strategies for work for example where your colleagues are more acquaintances and they're also a professional relationship so there's other ways that you can approach it and you can use that with, with friends as well so for example things like having a prepared statement I know we've talked about that in our concussion fix webinars before where it's like okay if I don't like questions instead of just telling them off saying don't ask me questions which probably won't go over very well because they're coming from a caring place it might be something like hey um you know coming up with a sentence in your mind to plan planning ahead of time that's sort of a joke that you can laugh it off and be Mm -hmm. like you know like someone would say um Oh, I broke this arm, but I have another one, right? So whatever kind of, if they're a witty or humorous person, they might come up with a joke to sort of say, hey, how can I shift attention to something else? Because I don't want to go there. It's too draining for me to try to answer all these questions. Um, other things you might say is just a generalized statement to sort of say, thank you so much for asking. Um, I'll get into it later with you. Or mm-hmm. thank you so much for asking. I'll follow up with you about this later. Right now, I want to focus on this. So there's just in terms of the wording, you can kind of soften the edges a little bit so that you can maintain whatever type of relationship it is with, with whomever you might be talking to. However, I would encourage in close relationships more of that authentic when you ask me questions, it actually kind of stresses me out. You mm. know, that might, that would be a, a time to say that because you want the people that love you and know you and are close to you to understand what too many questions does. Well, actually just makes me worried about all the stuff that's going on in my life. When we hang out, I'd love to kind of just keep it lighthearted. You know, I don't think someone would get offended with that. So it's kind of is again in this explicit communication and it doesn't mean that it has to be blunt. There's lots of ways to sort of soften the edges of of communicating your needs, but without communicating them, we then perpetuate that cycle of withdrawal and avoidance. So it is such a key piece. Mm -hmm. Is there any, um, like what are some, some main, um, things that you see from your patients? Like what's, what are some of the main points that your patients bring up? I wish my family understood this, or I wish my friends could, you know, are there main kind of themes that you hear in your practice that are common ones that some of maybe our listeners could relate to that, you know, you can give them some strategies around maybe? Yeah. I mean, well, the two people we spend our most time with are our families. So people that live under the same roof and our work colleagues. So I hear the most about those two groups. And when it's with family, there's a lot of assumptions that we make, right? So uh, why can't my 
husband, for example, see how tired I am and volunteer to make dinner and take out the garbage? Why can't he see that and automatically do it? I don't know, good question, but perhaps that's an assumption that he doesn't want to tune into your needs or he isn't tuning into your needs when really he's actually been waking up early to make sure he takes the kids to school or do A, B, or C because that's what he thinks is helpful. Mm -hmm. But what you think is helpful is taking out the garbage and making dinner. So if that goes you know, non uncommunicated, then we're perpetuating this cycle of, well, they don't understand me and they don't know what my needs are. So just because it's someone that's in your family, it doesn't mean they're going to be able to be mind readers and understand what your needs are. So kind of looping back again to that explicit communication, honey, thank you so much for waking up in the morning and taking the kids. I actually don't mind doing that because I have more energy in the morning. Do you think that sometimes that you could take over dinner? Because that's when I feel the most tired and hubby will probably be like, oh, okay, sure. No problem. Mm -hmm. Right. But he didn't know that because mm -hmm. she didn't communicate it and he's not a mind reader. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of assumptions. And I also want to say expectations that we kind of subconsciously have about our really close uh, supports, mainly family, that if we can kind of evaluate what those are in our own mind, then we can more um, articulately communicate our needs to our loved ones. So for example, you know, if you have kids and they come home with, you know, all cylinders firing and it's way too much for you, it might be like, okay, hey, can we create quiet time for the hour you get home so that you can regulate your nervous system and get ready for, you know, high energy kids. So there's so much that you can do to self-advocate. It's just that often we get lost in our, um, uh, the emotions around how we're feeling, what's happened to us, the symptoms that we're feeling it can be hard to see clearly on how we can actually support ourselves and communicate to our loved ones, how they can show up and support us too. And then do you have any, um, for like workplace, like what are the common workplace ones either? I'm guessing it's probably just too much workload or what do you, what do you usually hear with that? Yeah. One? Yeah. You know, if, again, going back to assumptions and expectations, I hear a lot about, um, you know, they know I have a brain injury. Why are they still giving me all these tasks? You know, there may be, you know, for example, one that I hear regularly is my boss still gives me A, B, and C, um, you know, visual tasks on the computer, but I can't do that. Why don't they know that I can't do that? They should know that I can't do that, mm -hmm. but they may not, right? It, it's an assumption or an expectation that, that your boss may, um, not know maybe they don't have a personal connection with concussion or brain injury and they need some help with that so if there's a way to say hey um can i delegate a b or c to staff member sue for example mm -hmm. and take uh c d and e tasks off their plate and do them because that's something you physically can do that's going to be so much more helpful and it's just you know, taking almost a microscopic view at what are the things that are hard? What are the things that I'm struggling to do? And how can I better communicate that to my team, my boss, the people that I work with every day? Yeah, without going too much of an avoidance perspective, you know, like I, I always advocate for people doing things that do actually challenge them in some capacity, but not making your whole day about for that. sure. Yeah. Right? And that's another piece, right? And what I'm saying, these are strategies to help get you by, but it doesn't mean, Hey, if I can get this task off my plate, that's hard. I'm never going to revisit it. So that's not what I'm trying to communicate. 
yeah, yeah. as we know, you know, Cam's hat would be, Hey, you know, maybe put it off your plate for the first month or a couple of weeks, then start to reintroduce it slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Or even shadow work on it together with somebody else. So that it's not all on you, but you're still getting the practice with less, you know, stress under you. A lot of times employers aren't so amenable though, to, you know, these types of things, which it makes it challenging. I know that my patients, you know, teachers are a tough one because it's either you're teaching or you're not teaching. They're, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty strict about having multiple teachers sometimes in the same room. Mm -hmm. I always try to advocate for shadowing and that type of thing. Um, You know, I mean, I think if you're in that trouble, do you have any, any ways of speaking to an employer that's not really amenable to that? I don't know. I don't yeah, know absolutely. No, this comes up all the time. I think that's a great question. So when you've had an injury, I would always recommend reporting when it, when you know it's something like this, that may be going on for a while, reporting to HR, making sure your injury is documented so that you have support from an OT. So actually legally, I believe it's legally that you, you are entitled to have an OT to advocate for you. So they'll come in and do an assessment to say whether or not, um, you know, A, B or C can actually be done, or they'll try to come up with a plan to work with you and your boss to get those tasks done. So there are people in your corner. It may not always be the best um, option, but you're not completely stuck, right? HR, if you work corporate, HR is there. OT should be available to you to help you. Oftentimes, those are sort of more ergonomic, physical types of things. But I have heard some clients that work for large uh, corporations or companies that do have some of their other needs met, like visual challenges if they work on a computer a lot. Um, You know, things like the documents they need are now available to them audio right? So they, they can listen and still do their job and then input into the computer, for example. So if you work for a smaller company that doesn't have an HR, it's kind of going back to that communication, just trying to see if you can advocate for yourself, get some of the things that are really overwhelming off your plate or um, modified in some way. And you're entitled to that, right? This is something that's a challenge. You need to look after yourself to recover and sort of navigating those work relationships can be really challenging. Um, and, and exhausting, right? It's so mm. much energy. It, mm. First of all, you're trying to get back to work after being off, if you are off after a brain injury, and then trying to figure out, well, how do I communicate all my needs and the things that I can't do right now to my employers and staff? Mm-hmm. And uh, for those that are listening, we had uh, Lewis Quayle on, who's a, who's a personal injury and employment lawyer. Um, so if he's in Ontario, but if you are in Ontario or have, you know, general kind of questions around that there we do talk about that in an episode i've done previously with him so you can go back and take a listen to that um or you can find him on our website and reach out to him and see uh just because there are there are legal requirements that employers do have to kind of work with you that with as long as reasonable Mm -hmm. uh you know within it so so i think that's something that knowing your rights can maybe help you get the confidence to approach some of these conversations as well Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not my area of expertise, but I do know yeah. that, you know, employment lawyers like that are, are there and they even do free consultations mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people to say, Hey, it, you know, you can share with them what your struggle is, if that's happening for you and they can tell you uh, what your options are. Mm-hmm. So I just have two more, two more kind of questions and they're along somewhat of the same vein. One's person, one's, um, you know, workplace, one is social. So let's say you've been isolated let's say you you know kind of lost track of some of your friends along the way and you know let's say your family's not really around there you know they live 
five hours away and you kind of talk to them on zoom and FaceTime every once in a while, but they're not really around. And so you're becoming isolated, you know, socially anxiety, depression, all that stuff starts to kick in. How, how do you reach back out? How do you re-engage that social network? Do you have any strategies for that? Do you, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just going to pass it to you for that one. And then the next one along the similar line, I just want to ask about work because I've had so many patients just again, kind of along that line of just being afraid to go back to work for the social aspect of, you know, what are my coworkers going to think? Are they going to think I've been babying this? Are they going to think that I've been, you know, faking it or, you know, I'm just kind of milking this situation. So let's talk first about the social. How do I re-engage with my social network? Any strategies on that? And then we can talk about the, you know, workplace. And I know that's a barrier for people. Like people are like, I don't want to go back to work because of this. It's like, they almost want to just go and get a different job so that no, Mm -hmm. so that nobody knows them. It's like, you know, but that's not practical. Um, and this is the job you have. And so, you know, how do we get back into that? But anyway, let's talk, let's talk social first. And then, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So there's an analogy I use with clients all the time around um, weeding the garden, right? So maybe you are someone who was really outgoing before your injury and you have this lush garden with so many plants and flowers and trees, and you've, you know, it's taken very little energy to maintain this, this lush garden. Well, now that you have an injury, maybe, well, it's going to be way too much work to kind of maintain all these relationships, right? The analogy obviously is that the flowers and the plants and the trees are your social network. And it's sort of, Hey, can we start weeding the garden? Are there, you know, a few people, you know, if obviously your garden doesn't have to be this lush, it can be quite small, which is much more normal. If you've got like, you know, five close friends or, you know, two family members, even just one best friend, right? That's probably a more practical solution, but let's just go with the analogy for now. And all this is saying is maybe there's a couple people in there that just don't get it, right? You've tried, you're exhausted. You really don't know, you know, how else to try to help them understand what your needs are. And it's exhausting trying to maintain them. So perhaps they just kind of get replanted at the back of the garden. It doesn't mean you're cutting them loose. It may be, maybe you just want to, you know, cut them down, but it may just be this sense of, Hey, can I just replant them at the back of the garden and let them do their thing? I still love and care for them, but they're not someone that I'm going to put right at the front of my house and sort of spend the time watering every day. Whereas the people that you know have sort of shown up for you through this, you might want to spend that extra time, you know, making sure the soil is rich and you're giving them water and you're kind of investing in this. And, and it may only be one or two and that's okay, right? It's sort of trying to keep up with the way things used to be is probably going to be more um, exhausting than it is helpful. So for those of you, and I think this, what I've been speaking of so far is more for people with sort of a rich social network that are maybe trying to maintain everything. Um, but it's very possible that, hey, my, my social network was kind of slim to start with. And now it's really low because I'm completely withdrawn and maybe avoidant that I just really don't know how to do these things. So in terms of this whole analogy, bringing forward the supports that are helpful 
and then planting new flowers, finding new connections. Maybe that's a community support system. Maybe it's an online program. Maybe it's um, joining a support group for people with concussion. You know, I know with our concussion fix program, that's one of the things people just absolutely love mm -hmm. is that there's this social support, people that get it. You don't have to explain yourself. You're mm -hmm. just understood mm -hmm. and you're taken care of by each other. So sometimes when it comes, you know, things like concussion that don't just last a week or two, we need to start planting new seeds and creating new connections that make sense and that bringing people close to us that get it. So thinking to yourself, hey, what exists in my garden? Do I need to cut some you know, cut some people out? Do I need to replant them at the back for now because it's too exhausting to maintain those connections? Do I need to just really focus on the one or two that are really beautifully growing? Or maybe I need to plant some new ones. It's a great, great analogy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great yeah. analogy. Um, and I mean, the concussion fix program, I think you, you touched on that uh, is, is awesome for that having people be able to connect with people that are going through the same thing is awesome. And like they're forming connections outside of us even and meeting people in their areas and doing all this fun stuff. And, you know, we have yoga classes and activities and stuff that are going on, which is awesome because then it's like, you don't even really have to, you know, leave your house at the start and you kind of, you know, develop these connections and then you gain the confidence to maybe go and do that outside. So I think it's, you know, that's mm. a, that was kind of an unintended consequence of the whole thing. Um, but I think it's actually one of the, one of the best things about it is kind of meeting with people yeah. that are all, all on the same journey. So let's go into- really spoke to their needs, right? What their well, yeah. needs were. And we kind of just evolved with what their needs yeah. were. Yeah. Mm. Or the, are. Yeah. Let's, let's go into the, into the workplace now. So I'm a worker. I'm dreading going back to work, not because I don't think I can't do the job, but it's just, you know, my, you know, the people that are in the cubicles next to me and everybody, you know, wondering where I've been and, you know, all of these things. And I'm just dreading that. How do I, how do I tackle that? Do I just suck it up and go for it? Or what do I, what can I do to help that mm -hmm. transition? I think it really starts with, with that person, right? Yourself. Can I start to understand the things I'm sensitive to? Can I start to understand what my triggers are? And then can I start to build some boundaries? So whether that's things like we talked about before, prepared statements, having a sentence that kind of gets people off your back if they're asking questions, understanding what your needs are and how to communicate them. So that one really starts with you kind of getting, taking the time to get to know yourself. What are the things I need to make this work? What are the things that are too much? How do I navigate those? And it sort of is recognizing what the things are that you can self-advocate for so that people can follow suit, right? Mm. If we go to work and we don't have ourselves prepared, then we might just feel really overwhelmed and feel like we can't do it. Mm -hmm. But if you feel prepared to go back to work um, with you know, how to manage questions or people who might be judging you or, or you fear that they're judging you because sometimes we don't know that can be an assumption or an expectation. Um, then it can just get all muddled. So trying to parse out these things, you know, you may have to go back to work and figure out what, what the things are mm. that are actually not working. And then, and then working together either, you know, with a therapist, a counselor, a friend, someone that can help you to say, Hey, how do I make this better for myself? Mm. 
And we can't expect other people to just get it. And I think that's one of the things that happens a lot is, mm-hmm. hey, I'm coming back. People know I have a concussion. Why don't they get it? Right. Right. And people don't. I mean, it's yeah. doctor. Most doctors don't understand concussion. So you can't expect your coworkers to unless they've personally been through it. But even then, their concussion may have been completely different than yours. And so yeah. it's every, everyone's different in this respect. I had one patient I remember that, um, you know, she her approach was that she was going back and this was something that was bugging her. And so she she kind of reached out to one or two of her closest kind of coworkers. And, you know, brought them out to lunch or, or some sort of meetup before she actually went back to the office so that mm-hmm. she could, she could have those kind of conversations and kind of explain things to them and how she's feeling and where she's at and kind of things that she's nervous and anxious for. And then she kind of went back and, and felt that there was a, some allies that were there. And so I thought that was an interesting um, strategy and one that I've, I've advocated since of, you know, reach out to somebody you're close with first make that connection, see that it's okay. Again, building the confidence there and, and trying it out on somebody else. And then, mm-hmm. and then, you know, now you have a kind of a bit of a supporter that even that person, if they see that you're in trouble and being hounded, people can be like, Hey, can you just leave them alone for a bit? Yeah. Like, um, right. you know, so I think that's a, that's a cool one. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea, right? Having somebody in your corner, everybody needs somebody in your corner. So even if it's just one colleague, one friend, one person, that's still so much, you know, the one thing I wanted to um, uh, talk about is perceived social supports. Um, You know, what's so interesting, and what we find in the literature, is that people who perceive low social support, even though from you know a population standpoint they probably they have more social supports than um, your average person if they perceive that those people aren't there for them then they are going to kind of go down that path of uh, emotional complications or emotional setbacks like depression anxiety but somebody that may only have one person in their corner that perceives their support system is high Mm does so much better. Mm. So this perception about my social support system is so important. And it is something that's well documented in the literature. Interesting. I'm looking forward to your talk on this tomorrow uh, mm. with with the groups. I think it'll really kind of I think the discussion is going to be really interesting with people because we're going to hear firsthand from a lot of people that are having, you know, different questions and concerns and issues with this right now. Do you have any final thoughts or things we didn't cover that you think are important that we should before we close? No, I mean, I think that was a great discussion. I'm so glad that you invited me to talk about this. I think it's something that I'd love to get more um, input from others. So those of you who are listening, let us know what your thoughts are. Did we miss anything? Is there anything else that would be so important to touch on on this topic? Because I think it is so complex and there's, uh, you know, there's so many different layers to it. And, you know, Cam and I are always uh, continuous learners, right? So we want to, we want to hear from you too. And um, I'd be curious just to kind of see tomorrow with our group, you know, what their thoughts are so that I can continue to build my knowledge about it as well. Yeah, for sure. So if you're, if you're on YouTube, uh, feel free to just leave a comment below uh, and ask a question and things that I don't know or feel that Melinda can answer better, I'll just forward off to you and I'll let you kind of handle that, handle that there. But Melinda, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, always good to get your take on, on these, on these issues. And so Mm -hmm. um, everybody, you can follow Melinda at Stillspace on Instagram. Uh, What's your, what's your clinic name? How can people find you clinically? Stillspace, um, Stillspace Healing is a psychotherapy practice. You can find me at stillspace.ca. 
Cool. And go from there. Reach out, ask me questions. I love to hear from you. Right on. Thanks you for can... having me, Cam. You're welcome. And you can always find her on the Concussion Fix as well. If you go to concussiondoc.io, you get her firsthand with you. All right, Melinda. Thanks a lot. Bye, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.